You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Very good. You may be seated. Um, If it serves you parents, we have kids. We have two classes, ages 2 to 4, and then 5 to 9. Go right through those doors across the hallway if that serves you. In 2023, this is just a preview. You can probably expect to hear and see more of our confession of faith uh, on Sunday mornings and more broadly in some written material. So uh, more on that in the future here. Well, by my, by my count, there are only six sermons remaining in our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe six, probably. Uh, I don't know what you think, but I think it's been good to slow down and to take to heart the teachings of Christ from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The most, the most significant and important sermon ever preached by our Lord. I know that I have been challenged and encouraged as we've walked through these three chapters, and I hope the same is, is for you. Now, before getting into today's sermon, I just want you, I want you to know what you can expect from the pulpit for the remainder of 2022 and 2023. Um, there will be a few Advent series coming up as we lead up to Christmas. By the end of January 2023, we will finish the sermon series. Promise. <laughs> it's like, how long are we going to be in this? It takes a while, um, especially the way we preach, but hopefully by the end of January 2023, we'll finish this. At present, here's what I'm thinking. I'm really, really excited about this. At present, I'm thinking about going through the biblical covenants, creating a sermon series around that. Uh, the word covenant has lost a lot of favor, especially in the evangelical world. Thanks, man. And uh, I think that's, that's a shame. I think we've got to go back and revisit what does it mean for God to make a covenant with his people. And that uh, we have the, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm going to do that. And here's the lead-up. This is the lead-up. After we set a foundation of what are biblical covenants and why should we care, I want us to go through the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament is the greatest exposition and explanation of the Old Testament. So you might be thinking to yourself, Pastor Sean, you promised that we'd be in the Old Testament more, right? Like we, We're just not just read the New Testament, the Old Testament, you know, just kind of throw it away. No. We will be in the New Testament as we go, we will be in the Old Testament as we go through the covenants. And actually, when you read the book of Hebrews, it's constantly quoting the Old Testament, <laughs> And so I'm actually really excited about taking the opportunity to show you how the Old Testament and the New Testament are deeply connected, and it does matter for us today. So that's what I'm projecting for 2023, and I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be for your encouragement, which you're going to see as we go through the book of Hebrews, a repeated theme, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater, (laughs) Jesus is greater, a theme over and over and over and over. So... We'll get into books like Genesis, Exodus, 2 Samuel, and then uh, there'll be some other Old Testament books that we'll dip our toe into. Now, on to today's sermon. Verse 12 of today's passage is well known even if a person is not a Christian. Uh, various cultures and religions have their rendition of verse 12, the golden rule. Like, I, I learned this this week. Did you know that there is a principle called the silver rule? 
It is the golden rule, but stated in the negative. It goes like this. If you should not, you should not treat other people in a manner in which you would not want to be treated. That's the silver rule. So, you don't want to be slapped? Great. You shouldn't expect that from other people as well. Don't slap. Um, don't slap someone else if you don't want to be slapped. The difference between the silver rule and the golden rule is that the silver rule does not require you to do something. But I think from today's text, we see that the golden rule actually assumes action. Christ is calling us to do something. The golden rule is an appeal about what it looks like to treat others. It's about treating other people justly. I think, I think of it's pretty straightforward for me. But I'm going to argue that this morning that while the sentiment of the golden rule is good and true, the golden rule can only be understood rightly under two conditions. Number one, condition number one, the golden rule can only be rightly understood within the context of the surrounding verses, right? We don't want to rip the golden rule, verse 12, out of context. The context helps us to understand what Christ is saying. Now, my goal with condition one is to help you see how it fits together. Here's the second condition for understanding the golden rule. The golden rule can be rightly understood and practiced if somebody surrenders to Christ. Have you ever noticed, um, especially every four years, you know, when politics heat up, politicians love quoting the golden rule. Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. It's quoted all the time. All the time. Your favorite politician, whoever he or she might be, will tell you to follow the golden rule and then go on to explain his or her vision for fulfilling the golden rule. Almost every time a politician invokes the golden rule, it is misapplied. I don't care your political persuasion. It gets misapplied. However, when the golden rule flows from faith in Christ then the practice is joyfully understood and the practice is joyfully sustained. There seems to be, I think, a lot of confusion and opinions about the golden rule. So I'm going to pray briefly for God's help and then we're going to look at today's text to rightly understand this important teaching from our Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We come underneath it this morning knowing it is authoritative and instructive for our lives. Help me, O God, a flawed and sinful individual, help me to be faithful. It's help that I need in the power of the Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So have you ever received an invitation to a party or a wedding and you were required to kind of like give the RSVP back, right? You get the invitation and they're asking you, RSVP, let us know if you're coming. When you receive the invitation you know who is offering the invitation and you realize that you need to respond. You disrespect the sender if you do not reply. I mean, if you ever planned a wedding, you know, it's, it's like, are they coming? Are they not coming? <laughs> you want people to reply. So the whole flow of the ordeal looks like this. An invitation is sent. You are to respond. The person who receives your affirmative response responds in kind. Perhaps when you actually get to the event that you RSVP, RSVP'd for, you have a nice four-course meal. 
at said event, and because of the graciousness of that response, you respond once again. Perhaps you say thank you for the invitation and being included on the occasion, and kind of the cycle probably continues. A similar flow exists when God invites us to pray. The motive to respond is different than receiving a four-course meal at a wedding, but a response is solicited. After these first two steps, God promises to respond in kind. And it is because of God's response that his people are urged to respond by modeling God here on earth. Now, all this might seem confusing, and it is possible I wrote the introduction of this sermon while drinking a red-eye coffee because I was tired. But I think this is the pattern we see in Matthew 7, verses 7 to 12. Today's passage ends a long list of ethical exhortations from Christ. A lot of ethics. We've covered a lot of ethics in the last several months. I think I stated this at the beginning of this sermon series, which is worth noting again. There is a literary structure leading up to today's passage in the Sermon on the Mount. I said that the Sermon on the Mount is divided into three sections. The first section, right, we have the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the string of pearls, and each pearl causes us to slow down and reflect. We took the Beatitudes one at a time. The second section, which is the longest section, began in Matthew 5, 17, when Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. Jesus did not abolish the law, but he fulfilled the law. What does that mean for your life, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law? Here's how Jesus explains it. Jesus says, you're to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. The very people that he's going after, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, you need to be more righteous than them. But there's a problem. Even if you want to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees by obeying the law, you can't because you are a sinner. John Powers is a sinner. You need Jesus to fulfill the law, who is the righteous one. And now you and I need help from Christ to live righteously. Your attempts to obey the law fail at every turn. You need help. You need help from Jesus. So, since Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, Jesus is laying down the ethics of his kingdom. These ethics are not new, but Jesus needs to correct the abusive teaching that was taking place. I believe these ethical teachings have a foundation that actually goes back to the Ten Commandments. For months, we have been challenged by our Lord about how to rightly live in this world, right? Over and over again, this is how you live, this is how you live, this is how you live. This is how you live in my kingdom, which I have established here on earth. The ethics of Christ come to this beautiful culmination with, a, with focus on dependent prayer and on this thing we call the golden rule. So I hope you see what's happening here. Jesus has been saying, follow, learn, obey me if you want to know what it means to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And in Matthew 7, we're kind of approaching the end of the path. The third and final section, which we'll get into next week on the Sermon on the Mount, will shift from looking at the granular of the Christian ethics and focus on what it means to have Christ as our foundation, but we're looking ahead a little bit. The golden rule, Matthew 7, verse 12, 
is not only an outflow in response to what Jesus teaches about prayer, but as I said, it is the culmination of Christian ethics from the Sermon on the Mount. The golden rule is the marching orders for the Christian life. This is what you're supposed to do. If you'd ask Jesus, how am I supposed to live? He'll go, okay, Matthew 7, verse 12. Golden rule. So do you want to know what it means to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? Do you want to sum up what it means to fight anger, live a lust-free life, rejoice in your marriage, love your enemy, and worship God over your earthly wealth? Answer, golden rule. Here's the often-cited golden rule. And then we're going to see how it fits in context. Our Lord Jesus said this, So whatever you wish, that word wish could also mean will or want, dilemma in the Greek. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Notice that when our favorite politician quotes this, they stop at them. (laughs) They don't take it back to the law and the prophets. With all that as a kind of a grand summary of where we've been and why we're here, let's kind of look at the details. From today's passage, we see the generosity of a gracious Heavenly Father. We worship a generous Father who meets the needs of His sons and daughters. You cannot grasp the golden rule unless you have been arrested by the graciousness of your Heavenly Father. If you don't understand what God has done for you in Christ, you will misapply the golden rule. Take a look at God's invitation to you and me, which will lead us to the golden rule. Our Lord says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Ask, seek, and knock. The emphasis of this passage is not clear in the English, in particular verse 7, but a feature popped out to me when I was exegeting the Greek language in preparation for this passage. I'm geeking out a little bit, but it's going to make a point. The verbs, ask, seek, and knock, have the same Greek case endings. All these verbs are in the present active imperative. Okay, great. What does all this fancy Greek have to do with you? Here's why the details matter. God not only invites you, but he commands you. Do not take the word command in kind of like this military sense, but I want you to see the force of what Jesus is saying. God is doing more than sending you an invitation via USPS, United States Postal Service. He's actually, he's got the invitation, the Father does, and he's carrying the mail right to your door, and he's inviting you. Parents might understand the force of what Jesus is communicating. Anybody can, but I think parents with kids, you know, you can understand. Parents invite their children to approach them with their concerns and questions and requests, right? Yes, it might be exhausting at times to field all the questions and concerns and requests. At the Powers House, questions come in rapid fire. It's like one after another. And I must admit, there are times when I don't want to field all the questions and concerns. Right? I might be busy or I'm just tired, 
I don't mind pointing out my limitations if it allows me to say that God the Father is never, never bothered to hear your requests, your questions. He's never bothered. Whatever your sinful limitations, God the Father will not push you away. God the Father will not look down on your honest requests. God the Father will not dismiss a sincere heart. God calls you, Christian, to ask, to seek, and to knock. Think of it this way. God does not invite you to seek, to ask, seek, and knock, only to turn you away. That would be sinister, right? Could you imagine if I told my kiddos, hey, you can come to me with whatever's on your mind. And then when the time comes, I'm like, never mind. Right? That'd be cruel. God's invitation to you, Christian, is a standing invitation. What I mean is Matthew 7, verses 7 to 8, is not going anywhere. It is in your Bible for your good. So come back to this passage and remind yourself that the Creator the one who created the world, the one who is sustaining the world right now as you sit and breathe, that God, he invites you. No, he commands you. Ask of him. Seek him. Knock at the door. What is not explicit but implicit in our passage is when God sends out the invitation, he does want you to respond. But we sometimes do not respond to God's invitation, right? And the question I always have is why? The invitation gets misplaced, right? You get busy and forget about the invitation. Perhaps you wonder how you received this invitation in the first place. You do not feel worthy to attend the wedding, right? You do not feel worthy to be in the presence of your, your Heavenly Father, Whatever the reason for disregarding the invitation, here's what I want you to hear from me today. God invites you to respond. Why? Man, He loves you. He loves you. He sees your pain. Knows your pain better than you know your pain. He sees it all. He sees the hardship. He sees what you've gone through. And God does not push away his son or daughter. But he always calls you to respond. He urges you to respond. I need that reminder. Sometimes I need a good cattle prod. Right? <laughs> like, oh, yeah, God, God. God does want me to respond. He does love me. The Bible gives hundreds of reasons as to why God wants us to respond, right? But this one came to mind. God wants you to ask, seek, and knock for these reasons. I go to Psalm 16, verses 11. A messianic psalm, but very applicable nonetheless. We read in Holy Scripture, You make me know the path of life in your presence. In the presence of God, there's fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Jesus teaches us to pray to a gracious and heavenly Father so that we can experience the joy and pleasure of our Father. And how about these words from Matthew 11, right? When Jesus says this, come to me. Like, who here today walked in here with a bunch of baggage? 
a bunch of heartache, a bunch of pain. And so Jesus says this to you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and will you give you rest? No, I, Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Man, if you come here with a restless heart this morning, like this passage right here, in addition to asking, seeking, and knocking, coupled with this, is for you. He is lowly in heart. He will find rest for your soul. Man, I have tried so, so many times to put at rest my anxious soul, and it never works. But Jesus does it for me. For my yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. You know, there are times when Christians say, they're, quote, I feel distant from God. We've all said that, or, or felt that at the very least. And if this is the case for you right now, I want you to ask, have you tried to apply Matthew 7, verse 7? Have you asked God for your daily bread? Have you sought God for forgiveness to be delivered from temptation, right? Just going back to the Lord's Prayer here. Have you knocked on the door of heaven? Have you taken the invitation and have you responded to it? Do you want to know what asking, seeking, and knocking is attempting to cultivate? It's cultivating a relationship with God. We're called to cultivate that. When you ask, seek, and knock, you cultivate in your heart trust and greater faith in God. Too often, we think it's just going to happen by itself. But as is the case with human relationships, so is the case with our relationship with God. It takes us responding. Don't expect to have a vibrant relationship with the Lord when you don't respond to the invitation. Jesus further explains God's response to his sons and daughters in verse 9. We read, Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent or a snake? Now these examples are absurd. But they're absurd because they're meant to get your attention. To all you earthly fathers in the room, would you give a rock if your child asked for bread? Like in a sincere way? Of course not. You have a baseline understanding of what it means to care for your family, at least hopefully. If your kiddo asks for a fish, do you offer a serpent or a snake? I, I hope not. I mean, that's a good way to traumatize your child, especially me because I hate snakes. Like, Dad's here. Thanks for never giving me the snake. Appreciate that. I mean, the questions are rhetorical, and the examples are absurd, but, but they make the point. If you have a baseline understanding of how to treat your children, consider God the Father, who is not evil. Consider how he treats his children, his blood-bought children. Here's an interesting factoid. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, remember just chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, God the Father is mentioned 15 times. Today's passage is the 16th time. 
I think it's worth pausing for a moment to ask why. What's with the emphasis? Why does Jesus repeatedly tell us to consider and pray to God the Father? An obvious answer is that God the Father is the first person in the Godhead. Jesus is the Son of the Father. And Jesus, our brother, tells us to ask, seek, and knock of all the good gifts that come from the Father. So at the very least, it's worth acknowledging that there's a a Trinitarian focus in the Sermon on the Mount. But I think there's more going on in this passage. Earthly fathers are the head of their family, 1 Corinthians 11.3. But an earthly father can fail his wife and his children. I know I have. Earthly fathers are entrusted to care, love, provide, and protect for their family. But guess what? Earthly fathers are sinners. The imperfections of an earthly father does not necessitate the removal of a father's responsibility or authority. The imperfections of an earthly father can result in two actions that can take place at the same time. Earthly fathers need to be the first in the family to say the Lord's Prayer, right? Earthly fathers must be the first to seek, ask, and knock of their heavenly father. Earthly fathers need to lead by example and seek forgiveness when they have sinned. I mean, there's a lot more I could say about earthly fathers, but that begins to betray what's being communicated in this passage. But earthly fathers are the point of comparison with a heavenly father, which leads to the second point. Anyone God has put under the authority of an earthly father needs to first look up to their heavenly father. Look, I want my wife, I want my kids to lift their gaze upward before looking horizontally at me. Yes, I am to be an example, for sure. But a part of being that example is to grab my kids and be like, I need you to look up. I need you to see God first. Take a look at Matthew 7.11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and this is why I want my wife and kids to look upward. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of Him? I can provide a roof over the head of my family, right? I'm called to do that. Joyfully obey that command to provide for my family. I can work hard to place food on the table. But God the Father gives so much more. Will God the Father give everything that you ask of Him? No. You do not get everything you want. Sean Powers can knock on the door of heaven and ask for a 2023 Dodge Ram. Right? I can do that. I'm not going to get it. Do I need that? Do I want it? Oh, yeah. Give me all the bells and whistles. I I would love to tow anything and not worry about it. Do I need it? No. This is not how prayer works. And it does not work like a genie in the lamp. You you rub the lamp and then suddenly you receive three wishes. We, We need to stop treating prayer as if God is that genie in the lamp. The good gifts that are given by the Father are more important than any shiny object that may make you happy for a moment. 
The Father offers so much more. Here's Daniel Doriani to kind of explain. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, the Father wants to give us His kingdom and His righteousness. The Bible, incidentally, never shows anyone praying for happiness. Like, let that land on you. There are no examples in the Bible of someone praying for happiness. The Bible never tells us to pray for happiness. Never promises to make you, make you happy. The promise from God is not that you would live a happy and carefree life. It does promise that God will make us holy. In Luke eleven thirteen, Jesus says, The Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He grants what we need to grow in holiness. And the point I just made, not necessarily to have a carefree life. I mean, if you want to go prosperity gospel in the bit, then yes, they're going to promise you the happiness and the carefree life. Which is a lie. The check that will not get cashed. Yes, we are to ask, seek, and knock. But we need to have a biblically informed view of what we're asking for. We need to read the pages of Scripture to know how to seek after the Father. And we need biblical wisdom to know what door to knock on. God the Father gives us what we need and not always what we want. The Bible talks a lot about contentment and for good reason. We need what we need at the end of the day. We need Christ as our Savior and our Lord, which is immensely more significant than the 2023 Jodram, right? We need the Holy Spirit to help us focus on Christ and how to walk in holiness. We need to seek God for help to live distinctly in this world, in his kingdom. And now, and here is my rhetorical question in light of the two rhetorical questions from verse 10. Is it not gracious of God to give us what we need? You don't need to answer the question, but yes, it is gracious of him. To give us everything that we need. There have been a, a few moments in 15 years of marriage when I have I've speculated to Sharice about what kind of person I would be without Christ. The prospect is scary. The facts are obvious. I need Christ to save me through his sinless life, atoning death on the cross, and in the power of the resurrection. I need the Holy Spirit to guide and govern my life. What more excellent gift could, could the Father have given? I mean, I think of it this way. If you're not a Christian and you're wrestling with these words from Christ, I want to encourage you to pray. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Turn from your sin by seeking repentance and knock on the door of heaven and plead with God to give you the faith to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, coming full circle. What does all of this have to do with the golden rule? We started here with the golden rule, made our way around, now we're coming back. What does all this have to do with the golden rule? Actually, the connection between verses 7 and 11 and 12 is strong. Here's the connection. Because God the Father has been gracious to you, you are now called to look horizontally and be gracious to other people. God has poured out his grace and mercy upon your life, Christian. So you are to seek ways to extend grace and mercy to other people. 
God the Father loves you so much that he sent his son to rescue you through his death and resurrection. So the question on the table now is, what would it look like for you to extend a similar kind of love to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your enemy? Matthew 5, 43 to 48. The point Jesus makes in verse 12 is you want God and others to treat you with patience, mercy, grace, and love. We all want that for ourselves, right? So, treat others in a similar manner. That's what God has done for us. He's been patient with Sean Powers. He's extended grace to Sean Powers. He's extended mercy to Sean Powers. He's extended his love through Christ to Sean Powers. Now, what am I doing with that? I want those things for myself. Now, why wouldn't I turn around and do likewise to others? Here's the, uh, the cherry on top of what Christ emphasizes at the end of verse 12. So whatever you wish, want, or will that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, Jesus, it seems, could have stopped speaking after do also to them, period. And then the point still would have been made, Certainly, and frankly, we tend to stop there. As I mentioned, all of our politicians stop there. You don't want to get too biblical. But Jesus supports and qualifies his point by invoking the law and the prophets. Jesus wants us to remember what has been spoken in the Old Testament. What is he doing here? Do you remember when I said that verse 7, excuse me, Matthew 7, 12, closes out this second section of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, Jesus begins this section by talking about the law. Jesus begins by pointing us to the law. And now he ends this section of ethical teachings again, what? With the law. Jesus bookends his Christian ethics with the law. Therefore, we should not dismiss the law, but seek to understand what Jesus is saying about the law, especially in connection to the golden rule. The phrase, the law and the prophets, is shorthand for saying the commandments and teachings of the Old Testament. What Jesus is saying is that you can sum up the teachings of the Old Testament with this golden rule. Now, of course, it's not that simple. Love for God comes first, but coming off the heels of loving God is loving your neighbor. Jesus is not creating a new rule with the golden rule, but he knows his Old Testament. I had fun going to this one from Leviticus, right? Look at this. You should not hate your brother in your heart. Interesting that there's heart work going on in the Old Testament. We emphasize that a lot in the New Testament, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, but we see it here in Leviticus. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Now, verse 18 is the point I really want to make. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, 17 to 18 tells us what it means to exist in God's kingdom. One of the implications of living this way in God's kingdom is witnessing to a world in need of redemption and restoration. I mean, you called to be salt and light, Christian. Like living out this golden rule is very much living out in a way you're, where you're salty, you leave a residue behind as you engage people and you go places. And the light of Christ is in you and it's to shine into the darkness. God is using you, Christian, to be an extension of his love, of his mercy, and his grace. 
in this world, as messed up as you might think it is. Now, but Pastor Sean, why should we interact with a culture that is attempting to tear down anything and everything that is good and Christian, right? I've been hearing that question a lot more lately. There's a temptation in some Christian circles to throw rocks at the institutions that are actively attempting to strip the culture and anything and everything that is good. In some Christian circles, you can't find the golden rule with the spotlight. They don't want to apply it. I think two realities are valid at the same time, and I do have my Bible to support these positions. The church is the institution that must call out the shenanigans going on in the culture. The church shepherds must warn and protect the sheep, even when it's not popular. I'm not looking to win a popularity contest. I'll take my point a little further and say a shepherd of the church needs to be willing to be bloodied to protect the sheep. If the church does not have this prophetic voice, it will not have it at all. At the same time, and this is the second truth, the church must be the first to turn the other cheek. I'm talking about golden rule stuff. We're, we're summarizing here. The first, the church must be the first to turn the other cheek. The church must be the first to give the shirt off the back. The church needs to be the first to forgive an enemy. Our credibility, this is really important, our credibility does not rest with how big the rock is that we want to sling at the culture. Our credibility rests with joyfully obeying the golden rule and everything that is connected to the golden rule. It is remarkable to me that after all these ethical teachings from Christ, we now have one memorable sentence to summarize it all. So here are a few questions for you this morning. Will you ask, seek, and knock at the door of heaven? If so, what will you ask for? And after God has been gracious to you, and after you remember that he's been gracious to you, will you be gracious to others? Will you, will you extend that to the people around you, to your neighbor? This morning, we should leave encouraged about the character of God the Father, we should leave encouraged by what God has given us through Christ. But we should also be challenged to treat others as God has treated us. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.